Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Missionary God, today with a message entitled God's Global Agenda. So turning your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 to 43, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've been to Israel a number of times, and whenever I get off the plane and set my feet down on Jewish soil, I remind myself that I am now in the center of the earth. (laughs) Of course, the earth is round. I know that. And in a geographical sense, there is no center. I mean, you might as well ask, where's the center of a basketball or a tennis ball? And yet, if you look at a map, Israel does occupy an interesting spot on God's earth. It's at the end of the Mediterranean Sea, and as one goes inland from there, one has access to the Middle East and, of course, further into what we Westerners call the Far East, India, China, and so forth. To the north of Israel are Syria and Turkey, leading up either into Russia or into Europe, depending on which route you take. And to the southeast is Arabia, and leading down to the southwest is Egypt, which opens up to the African continent. And if you sail out of Israel by the Mediterranean, you not only pass by some of the lands of the Middle East, you also pass by Northern Africa and also Europe to the north. So if you look at it on a globe, it really is possible to see Israel as the center of the earth. But of course, from a biblical perspective, it is the center of the earth. This is the promised land, and this is the land that Abraham walked as well as Isaac and Jacob. This is the land that Joshua conquered and that David ruled as king. Solomon built it up as a place where people traveled from Ethiopia to Iran. And of course, his temple inspired songs of praise to God. But most important, Israel is the land of Jesus. And because of all these things, Israel is the center of the world. From Israel has come the glad news of the gospel, from the center to the ends of the earth. I want to make the point today that as we're discussing missions, that even though as we read through the First Testament, it deals primarily with Israel, and yet what is happening in Israel is intended to reach far beyond Israel. Today, I want to talk about God's call to his ancient people in relation to how they were to react to the nations around them. But more, I want to help us to understand that the very real and then painful lessons of Israel's failure has so much to say to us about our call to missions. If you listen to me yesterday, I made the point that when God first called Abraham to leave his land and his people and his home and to follow God on a sacred journey, then God promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. God would bless him, but we also notice that God told him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. What then happened to that promise? So if we read the First Testament closely, we will find that the mere existence of Israel was to be a blessing to the nations around them. Now, you might not think that. I mean, after all the wars of Joshua and then, well, let's read Deuteronomy 7, verse 5, and it talks about the nations Israel was to defeat. It says, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. So in essence, we need to see Israel's presence in Canaan as a declaration of warfare against the false gods and false idols of the Canaanites. 
And yet even while this was the case, we find a distinct concern for the Gentiles all through the pages of the First Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells Israel that they must keep his laws, and then following that, he gives one of the reasons for that. Verses 6 to 8 gives one very important reason for that. See, the passage referring to the law says, keep them, do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? See, that's to say, if Israel keeps the law, she's going to become a light to the nations, and she is going to inspire the nations to seek after God. And by the way, that theme is carried on in the New Testament. I mean, look at Colossians 4, verses 5 to 6. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's to say, learn to live so with Christian virtues so that you're winsome to others. I mean, after all, we've all known people who share their faith, and some are even great preachers, but then you find out they're abusive or they're unkind or they're quick to criticize or quick to slander. Their unbiblical way of life overshadows everything else they say. But Paul says, walk in wisdom to outsiders. And the command in the First Testament says, keep the law. And when the nations see your humble obedience to the law of God, they will find that the structure of your society, that the ways of justice, that your concern for the poor, well, that's overwhelmingly winsome. They'll want to have what you have, and they're going to inquire of you. But let's examine Israel's relationship to the Gentiles more closely. Now, first, I suppose that there's nothing that defined Israel more than than the celebration of the Passover. You know, Exodus 12, verse 45 says, No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. That seems clear. Passover is for Israel. I mean, after all, it's the celebration of Israel coming out of Egyptian slavery. But then after declaring that, several verses later, that is in verses 48 and 49, the passage says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, provision had been made for any sojourner or any foreigner who wanted to bind himself to the house of Israel. Provision was made for him or for her to eat the Passover meal with Israel. Now, again, there's a New Testament parallel to this, and that's the eating of the communion meal. You know, since I pastored for years in a church that had open communion, I would typically make an announcement that sounded like this. I'd say, the Bible is quite clear on this matter. This meal is for those who have repented of their sins and have surrendered their lives to Christ and to Christ alone. If you know Christ today as your Savior and Lord of your life, if you're walking in obedience to Jesus, this communion meal is for you. But if today you're not, I would invite you to pass the bread and the cup by as it goes by you and the bench. But please don't feel singled out, I would say. 
We're happy you're here, and it may be you're here because you're on a spiritual journey. You should know that everyone here today was once at a place in their lives where they refrained from participating in this. So we understand the spiritual journey. Welcome here. And so you see, provision is made to participate in communion, but a conversion is required to do so. And and that's what it was in Israel. No foreigner could participate in the life of the Passover, but a door was open to every foreigner. All they needed was to come and to convert. And there are other examples of grace to foreigners. Let me take you to Leviticus 23, verse 22. It says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now that is, since the land was from God, provision needed to be made that the land would be available both to the poor and the alien, but also to the Gentile. And of course, the Bible gives a wonderful illustration of just that. It's found in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite woman, and if you know your Bible history, you'll know that there was an unsavory history between Israel and Moab. And yet Ruth has come to find refuge in the God of Israel. But she's destitute, and so she takes up gleanings in the fields, and she picks up after the harvesters. And many modern readers of of Ruth might perhaps miss this important principle. The law protected her. The edge of the field and anything the harvesters left was hers by right. It's in the Torah. And that was God's provision for foreigners. The land would have a bounty for Israel, but the land also needed to overflow to the nations. And perhaps these kinds of laws seem somewhat mild in their attempt to bless the nations. If we are to get a full sense of God's concern for the nations, we need to go to 1 Kings chapter 8. It's really a marvelous chapter, for Solomon has has just completed building the temple. And then he gathers Israel for its consecration. This now is the place where God will be worshipped. And this is the place where God's people will come and cry out to the Lord their God. And Solomon promises that when they come and repent of their sins and bring their requests, God is going to hear. But do the Gentiles have any part in this? Oh, yes, they do. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We want to share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated. Or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 international match campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts supplying Bible teaching resources, Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading a part of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, and it's, it's found in 1 Kings 8, verses 41 to 43. Solomon prays, 
Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Would you notice Solomon's concern? See, he knows from reading the law that that God wants all people on earth to know his name and to fear him, even as Israel is called to do. That was the impulse that was there at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. But now let's fast forward to a week that that Christians have called Passion Week. That refers to the, the last week of Jesus' life before he was crucified. On the Monday of that week, as he was entering into Jerusalem, he passed by a fig tree that was at the edge of the field. And as we've already seen, trees at the edge of the field are reserved for others, including sojourners and foreigners. And so Jesus had a legal right to eat from that tree. And Jesus was hungry, but there was no fruit on it. And so he cursed the tree and it withered. And after that act, he entered into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Why am I mentioning this? Well, let's start with the table of the money changers and those selling sacrificial sheep in the temple. The place where this was done was in the court of the Gentiles. Now think of what we are seeing when we read this. Solomon built the first temple and a part of the reason was so that the Gentiles would seek after God. But the very place reserved for them to do that was being overrun by the merchants and Jesus was livid and he was expressing the anger of God at such a contemptible treatment. But that brings us back to the fig tree. It wasn't the season for figs, but then again, spiritually speaking, it was never the season for figs in Israel. There was never fruit for the Gentiles, and the cursing of that tree, among other things, symbolizes Israel's brazen lack of concern for the nations. But all of this leads us to one First Testament book that I find utterly fascinating. If the First Testament were simply a Jewish tract or the description of the national religion of the Jews, well then, the book of Jonah would never have found its way into the Bible. So what's the book of Jonah about? Well, here's a hint. The point of the book is not that we should not run away from God. Now, that might be a sub-point to the book, but that's not why the book was written. We know that Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. It tells about the reign in Israel of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam, although a wicked man, had restored the border of Israel, says 2 Kings, at the direction of Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath-Hefer. Now, from that, we learn several important things. We learn that Jonah's time period was about 786 to 745 BC. And we also learn the nature of his ministry. He spoke truth to the political elite in Israel. And given the reign of that wicked king, this must have been quite a phenomenon. And we also see that in Jonah's times, these were difficult times. The Assyrian Empire was in its ascendancy, and it was a cruel empire indeed. Assyria boasted of its exploits and also its wanton cruelty. 
Assyria had no regard for other nations, and in time, the Assyrians would smash and destroy Israel, taking them into exile. Those were Jonah's times. Those were the times in which he lived. And so the book of Jonah begins with the words, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, if you don't know it, let me explain. Nineveh, that's the capital city of Assyria, much like Rome in its day was the center of her empire. And so God calls a man who's used to speaking to power. Go to Nineveh. Cry out against the evil that you find there. Now, that sounds simple enough. And if that's all that we learn from Jonah, well, you might think that this is just the story of a man who is running away from God, not wanting to do what God wanted him to do. <laughs> but the situation is far more complicated than that. See, as one reads through Jonah, one is struck by the Gentiles that one encounters in that small book. Jonah is now on board a ship and he's fleeing from God and his commands. And then a horrible storm comes up and the ship is in danger of breaking up. There are Gentile mariners on board and in the melee and in the imminent danger while they're crying out to their various gods. But Jonah is asleep and the captain of the ship wakes him and tells him to cry out to his God as well. And eventually, as you know the account, all on board come to believe that this storm is all about punishing just one man, Jonah. What have you done, they ask him. Where are you from? And he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, for he is the creator of all things. Well, that just terrifies those sailors. And in this scene, we're required to see a Hebrew prophet who's clearly rebelling against his God, and a group of Gentile sailors who clearly showed far more respect and honor to the God of Israel than did this prophet. I mean, what a contrast. And in the next scene, Jonah's in the belly of a huge fish, and, and we witness the prophet pleading with God for mercy. And a part of his prayer is recorded in Jonah 2, verses 8 and 9. So Jonah prays, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. It's hard not to hear that prayer and catch the arrogance in that statement. Those who pay regard to worthless idols, well, those are the sailors on the ship, but more importantly, they're the people of Nineveh, city filled with idols. Jonah is telling God, look, those people have forsaken their hope of the loving kindness of God and they won't get any mercy from you, or will they? <laughs> you know, so armed with his conviction, Jonah enters Nineveh, and for three days, he preached utter condemnation to Nineveh. And when he's done, he leaves the city, and he finds a place in the hot desert and waits for the destruction of the city, which he said would happen in 40 days. And as Jonah waits, something is happening. Like the pagan sailors on the ship, these pagans in Nineveh fear the power of Yahweh. The king of the Assyrian Empire takes off his kingly robe and he puts on sackcloth and he calls everyone in the city to weep and repent of their sins, especially from their sins of violence. See, the king says, who knows? Perhaps God will have mercy. I mean, we don't know, but just perhaps God might just be gracious. Now, of course, the person who thinks he knows what God will do is Jonah. Remember, he told God that those who worship idols have no hope in finding the steadfast, merciful, loving kindness of God. And so Jonah waits and God spares the city. 
And Jonah is utterly enraged. And then for the first time in that book, we hear Jonah in his anger finally speaking the truth about why he ran from God in the first place. I'm reading Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know, the crazy thing is that Jonah tells God he knows that God is slow to anger. And in doing that, he's, he's quoting Exodus 34, verse 6, which is a promise that God gave Israel after her disaster in making a golden calf idol. And Jonah is telling God, I know that your mercy is not just for Israel. It's for everyone, even the worst pagan idolater who repents. And I'm so angry about that. I would rather die than get used to the fact that you love Gentiles as much as you love Israel. You see it? Jonah has come to represent the unrepentant in Israel. Jonah hates God for loving Gentiles. And so the book ends with Jonah sitting out in the hot desert, angry with God. Israel was to be God's light to the nations, and instead she rebelled and wanted a tribal God who would only care for them. And they hated God for his concern for the nations. That's what we find in the Old Testament or the First Testament. And don't you see it? We might have that impulse as well. Whenever Christians today say, look, we're just gonna care for our own needs rather than have a heart for missions, we share the attitude of Jonah and ancient Israel. We need to repent. John, thanks for your message today. Can I ask you a question though? Would it be true to say that the church cannot be the church if it's not reaching out for the lost? Yeah, I think that's a very gentle way of putting it. I mean, there is a mandate that's given us, and the only way that we can escape that mandate is by simply ignoring Christ's agenda. And, and you know, we so easily we fall into that because, you know, it's so easy to make the church about ourselves rather than to recognize that the very nature of being the church is to be on mission in fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so uh, we must do this because Christ demands it and because our entire Bible that we open every single Sunday when we meet together demands this of us. So it is God's call for each one of us. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Missionary God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Good news is meant to travel. Jesus commanded us to take the gospel to every generation on a global scale. When we partner in the Great Commission, we magnify the numbers of hearts receiving God's saving truth. We all need these truths. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is thrilled to share our latest resource, free for the month of February, called Companions for the Gospel. This full-color laminated reference guide traces Paul's missionary journey in Acts and highlights those who partnered with him along the way in spreading the good news of our Savior. Not only is this a great teaching tool, 
but it's also an invitation to participate as companions for the gospel in our own time and place. To request your free copy today or, or to give a fiscal gift to support Back to the Bible Canada, nationally or globally, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.